Welcome to the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And Marcus, we need to do an episode that we're probably overdue for. One of our biggest episodes of all time, from our first six months to a year as a podcast, was R&B in the 70s, and it still gets lots of listens everywhere. I know, and there's so much to talk about during this decade as far as soul and R&B and groove goes because it was so ingrained into our everyday culture yeah. that we had to just jump in and start talking about it again because there's so much music. And in the first episode, we only touched the surface, which is probably what we're going to do again today. Well, we're going to do our best. I'm going to tell you, I, I was starting to think about us doing uh, a part two on this. And it, since it's been so long, I thought, well, is anybody going to remember part one? Then I looked at the numbers of how many people who have downloaded it. I think what moved me off the dime and got me moving forward is one day I was listening to my buddy Bruce Warren on WXPN here in Philadelphia. And he played the song I haven't heard in a long time, The Undisputed Truth, Smiling Faces. And that was on Gordy, but it was right out of that era when that kind of sound was prevalent. AM radio. Usually it was preceded by Long John Wayne on Famous 56 WFIL, The Undisputed Truth, and bam, he'd hit the post, you know? Uh, and I just wanted to thank Bruce for kind of inspiring us to move forward and get this second episode going. Sponsored by Boldfoot Socks at boldfoot.com. Check it out and save 15% by using our code HISTORY15 when you go and shop at boldfootsocks.com. Also brought to you by Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro, in the heart of Delco, and now in the heart of Horsham. All sponsoring the Imbalance History Podcast as we dive into the 70s can we kind of skirt disco a little bit i'll make you a deal we don't talk too much about disco in this episode i'll do a whole episode about disco <laughs> fine with that but you said we don't have to talk about it but we have to talk about it just a teeny bit All just right. a teeny bit only because but i think we should do a full episode dedicated to it at least at some point even though, you know, I'm not fond of all the stuff that's in that bag. Yes, and I do like the, some of the disco stuff, so I'm totally down with talking about disco. But the soul music of the 70s, way juicier, way meatier. And Hey, let's talk about some music that started in the 60s, but spilled into the 70s where a lot of great music would come our way. I'm talking about Cameo Parkway Records, started in Philadelphia. And they were known for pop records. By the way, their catalog currently owned by Abco Records. Yeah, it's Alan Klein's wife, basically, that owns the thing now. Holy cow. Yeah, they started out, you know, as a Philly-based label with Cameo, and they added Parkway, and they had a lot of great artists. And that's where a lot of the beginnings of what would be that Philly soul sound of the 70s got started, with Tom Bell joining the team and 
Him getting into the mix in Philadelphia music really led to amazing things. He had alliances, if you will, with everybody. The gang at Cameo Parkway, this label, that label, because he had the touch. Tom Bell had the touch. And he and Linda Creed and a few other songwriting partners really had the feel for what was going to be soul music and R&B rolling out of Philly in the 1970s. Trashman didn't get much rest today I don't know as much about the uh, Cameo Parkway stuff as I do about a lot of the uh, Detroit bands. So you get to school me on the Cameo Parkway stuff. I know and I recognize a lot of the singles that I've heard over the years. And I know the importance of Philly on soul music. It's really like the other side of the same coin. There's even examples, and I'll show you one in a little bit, where members of the MFSB play on records that Tom Bell's promoting and people in the uh, Philly International Circle are recording songs written by Linda Creed. It's really very, very tightly bound. The bands that really give Linda Creed an outlet for her amazing songwriting, primarily the stylistics, the spinners, and the Delphonics, but so many others too. Today I saw somebody who looked just like you. She walked like you do. I thought it was you As she turned the corner I called up your name I felt so ashamed It wasn't you Wasn't you I got to tell you, I got reignited in my love of the stylistics. Just looking at what the hits that they had in the 70s, most of them with Linda Creed as at least part of the writing team. Stop, look, listen to your heart. You are everything, and everything is you, Marcus. I just want you to know that. <laughs> um, silly stuff that, you know, like Bet You by Golly Wow, right? It's such a great song, though. simple and kind of poppy lighthearted songs like people make the world go round though really start to speak to people these are all records that were constantly in the top 10 on the r&b chart 
And every one of those records that I just talked about pretty much made the top 50. But I'm stone in love with you. Think about what that song was like coming out of your radio. And then break up the makeup. Now I'm in I'm in like junior high school, high school, yeah. right? We're getting to that point in life where you're starting to mm-hmm. hang around with girls. Break up the makeup seemed like to make so much sense for what was going on in like junior high school dating, mm-hmm. right? True. And here I am as a kid, and this is coming out, and my parents are listening to it. And I remember when "You Make Me Feel Brand New" came out. That's the song yeah. that really turned me onto the stylistics. I was about eight years old. My I'll never find the words, my love, to tell you how I feel, my love. Mere words could not explain. It could have either been in Denver or when we visited my family in New Jersey on the radio, but I know that I heard it. It's one of those songs that stuck with me to this day, and every time I hear it, I still get all goosebumpy. And like so many bands, the stylistics would have hits that would, you know, do well here and not so well there, but those songs all seem to create such an impression with the public that their future really seemed pretty strong. Through the 70s, they continued to record and have hits, and they played live off of that success for a long time, and they are one of the main benefactors of the writing prowess of Linda Creed. Man, the songs that she wrote? I don't know if you know that much about her. She died back in 1986. I remember she was only 37, Marcus, and I remember thinking how sad people were and I, and I didn't know much about breast cancer back then and we know so mm-hmm. much more and a lot of her friends got involved in research and in, in, in whatever they could to fight breast cancer mm-hmm. especially in such a young woman she got sick at 26 man she was sick through so many years mm-hmm. while she was still trying to do this and still be herself yeah. and she was an inspiration and some of the songs she wrote including The Greatest Love of All from uh. George Benson Right, we mentioned the stylistics, and Whitney Houston uh, ended up recovering that song and making it a number one hit later on. I believe the children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride to make it easier. The children's laughter reminds how we use. I mentioned the spinners briefly. She wrote a lot of songs that they end up doing, including uh, Ghetto Child. She uh, wrote I'm Coming Home, which was originally recorded by Johnny Mathis and then by the spinners, which we talk about all the time people re recording. Uh, rubber Band Man from the Spinners. I know you love that. Dude. Guy right bouncing all over yeah. the house. Oh, that song totally got me moving as a kid. One of the songs that turned me on to the Spinners. Oh, yeah. 
that and One of a Kind Love Affair were the two songs that I really remember from that time period. But Rubber Band Man, by far the most, because it got all the little kids bouncing and dancing. And that's just one facet of what she was part of as far as a writer. And so many of these groups that came along loved working with her and loved working with Tom. But I found something when we were doing research. We always find stuff when we're doing the research. Mm -hmm. Uh, In part one, we were talking about the Spinners, how they were not from Philadelphia, but they were recording there and working for Atlantic, which was a New York label and all that, right? Yep. Here's what can come out of that. On Could It Be I'm Falling in Love by the Spinners, lead vocals by Bobby Smith and Felipe Wynn, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. When you get to the part of the credits where it says additional background vocals, they mentioned the Sigma Sweethearts, and that brings up Sigma Sound, right? The 12th and Race in the city, uh, the legendary recording studio. Uh, Barbara Ingram was one of them, Carla Benson, Yvette Benton, and yes, Linda Creed singing backups on the Spinners records because she was good at that kind of stuff, too. Wow. so cool being able to write these amazing songs and then being able to sing back up on them holy guacamole that's amazing <laughs> i like some guacamole you, Me know? you do i'll tell you what they had an amazing career the spinners right oh. we were talking about them a little bit in part one and i started looking at the list of songs and i'm like wow you know what i also found in that little spinner section i was just mentioning what instrumentation credit by mfsb that's right they were working with Tom Bell and the Spinners, but it was Gamble and Huff's group of ad hoc musicians, their wrecking crew, right? Yeah. And that's how it worked. That's how incestuous all this was. Everybody was not unlike the Motown situation where everybody was trying to help each other to finish songs and add parts that would make hits, right? Oh, totally. Ah. And in the 70s, Stevie Wonder, what happened for him, with him, as an artist... One of the most amazing stories of the 1970s. He came out of that Motown sound, evolved into the progressive soul album after album, hitting his zenith with songs in the key of life right there in the middle of the 1970s. He was owning the charts, too, winning Grammys hand over foot, just dominating the rock and roll music world at that time. And Wasn't there a year where somebody won and they thanked Stevie Wonder for not putting out a record that year? Yeah, it was Paul Simon. Yeah, it was, Paul, right. Simon it was Paul Simon did Simon. that, thanks to Paul Stevie Simon Wonder. Simon being a wise ass. <laughs> Man, that shows you a lot of respect and love, too, for your fellow songwriters. And everybody knew Stevie Wonder was that good. We've talked about him a little bit in previous episodes, and man, 
Go back and listen to his albums from the 70s, and you will see what a genius he really is and how he changed music by himself with what he did. Groundbreaking. Groundbreaking, and he set the stage for many musicians moving forward. Before we get too far gone from what was going on in Philly with the Tom Bell-Linda Creek connection and all, I want to mention the old Delphonics, because they kind of set the stage, you know. How did they set the stage for all of this sound in Philadelphia? I guess it's all about like when you got together, how old you were, and where you were in the process, but they were starting out before everybody else. Like the Spinners, they started recording in the 60s. They had a hit, though. La La Means I Love You. Remember that one? I do remember that one. Wow. See? There are connections across the continent. Many guys have come to you with a line wasn't true and you passed them by passed them by though you're in the ring and their lines don't mean a thing why don't you let me try let me try now I don't wear a diamond ring I don't even know a song to sing all I And by the time they got around to the 70s, they were doing pretty well. In 1970, Didn't I Blow Your Mind This Time, Didn't I? Oh, yeah, man. This stuff was just over-the-top good. Mm-hmm. And they kind of got things going. Now, I don't know if you remember the movie Jackie Brown. Would you like some coffee? If you're having some. I am. Come on in. Why don't you make yourself at home? Would you like to hear some music? Sure. Cool. You know, I couldn't wait to get home last night wash the gel out of my hair. Looks nice. Thanks. You never got into the whole CD revolution? Oh, I got a few. But I can't afford to start all over again. I mean, I've invested too much time and money in my albums. Yeah, but you can't get new stuff on records. I don't get new stuff that often. I remember it, and I saw it in the 80s, and I haven't seen it since. Well, I won't get into the whole plot line for you, bro, but she's playing the character who's the um, airline attendant who's caught up in this whole thing between the law and and Samuel L. Jackson. She kind of gets smitten with Max Cherry's character. That's the late Robert Forster. He was the bail bondsman, and he gets into the Delphonics by hearing it at her apartment goes and buys the cassette tape and starts driving around, you know, when they're showing scenes of him in the movie, driving around, doing things. Delphonics in the background, man, it just all of a sudden, like, crystallizes when it was, that kind of thing. That's the Philly sound. That's the Tom Bell style. Yeah, wow. And to make sure we're getting everything and keeping everything on track, buddy, 
it's fair to say that Tom Bell really got his opportunity because he hooked up with uh, Kenny and Leon and then kind of stepped out on his own. Most of the songs that we did with the artists were written especially for those artists. In addition to that, we also had a lot of other great writers that uh, we were able to open the doors for, like McFadden and Whitehead, Bunny Sigler, Tom Bell, Lim Creed, uh, Sherman Marshall. So we had a good team. And I think between the songwriters and the producers and the musicians and studios, we had a great company. He was giving it to this label, Atlantic Records, everybody, because the guy had the touch. And he also knew how to write songs that other people would pick up. And he knew how to spread his love around and his creative genius around. And a lot of it was done right there at Sigma Sound with Joe Tarsha at the controls. Well, you know, unlike the first time we talked about R&B in the 70s on this podcast, Marcus, we actually are slightly organized here. We are? Yeah. I mean, we've kind of covered a lot of territory that we wanted to cover, but I think it's time to take it to the bridge, take it to the break, and uh, thank our sponsors, Boldfoot.com, Boldfoot Socks, and of course, Crooked Eye Brewery. Ray, I am so excited for our new sponsor of the podcast, Boldfoot Socks. The yeah. story behind this company is really solid. We have a gentleman, Josh, who owns the company with his family, who's a veteran and a family of veterans. And he tried Boldfoot Socks before he owned the company to use in a 100K trail race and they had no problems, and his feet felt fine afterwards, except for however your feet would feel after a 100K trail race. But there were no problems with the socks or anything, and so he and his family decided they wanted to buy the company. That's an impressive story. And they have everything from dress socks, compression socks, athletic stuff, and the designs are super cool. So check them out at boldfoot.com. And... If you're a listener to the podcast, you can save 15% on your order with the promo code HISTORY15. That's HISTORY15 at boldfoot.com. Boldfoot socks. Grown here, sewn here, 100% American-made. you got to love that. And 5% of all of Boldfoot's profits go to veterans in need. It's a veteran family, a veteran-owned company, and we thank them for their service and for their sponsorship of the imbalanced history of rock and roll. A new year at Crooked Eye and a new slate of freshly brewed ales. And your favorites, right? Of course, the favorites always. I'm excited to try some of these new beers in 2022 as well because it's a new year. Try some new beer. See what's new in 2022. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> At York and Montgomery and the heart of Hatboro, always a good time to be had there. The live music, the events, the blues jam on Wednesday nights. And, of course, you not only can have the brews that are made right there on the premises by Jeffrey, but they've got Pennsylvania craft spirits and wine and just a good time to be had anytime you slide by Crooked Eye in the heart of Montgomery County and in the heart of Delco near you. That's right. Check out Jamie's House of Music. And they've announced to third place to get your crooked eye at Speed Raceway in Horsham, Pennsylvania. Always something happening, man. Always something going on behind the eye at Crooked Eye. It's the imbalance history of rock and roll. Here we are, Marcus. We've seen the download numbers on the first episode that we did grow over the last couple of years. It's amazing to see 
that so many people have found us. And we found that uh, primarily it was through a post on Pandora and through uh, general Google searches. R&B of the 70s Part 2 is here and underway because we really should have done this a while ago. Agreed? I agree because there's still, even after that first half we just spoke about, so much more to talk about. And it, again, could easily carry into a few more parts because of the depth and the power of soul music in the 70s. I'm starting to feel that way myself, man. We may need to do parts three, four, whatever. These things take on a life of their own in the podcast universe, and here we are. Mm-hmm. Can we go to Chicago? We can go to and Chicago. I don't mean the we band. need to. I, I just meant the city, you know. We need to. It's important for this decade. So important is uh, Chat Town. Well, mainly for it being the point of origin of one band comprising the elements earth, wind, and fire oh, such a great band <laughs> oh my god what a great band so important i've been listening to them since i was a kid and i know you were a teenager when they hit your radar so i'm sure it was fun to dance and party to them in the 70s as well when they were fresh and new and everybody going yeah everybody was i mean we knew the the white brothers were involved and we knew philip bailey because he was kind of a visible uh, element but they were just this amazing force of nature and around a time when horn sections in bands became more and more acceptable not just in r&b but across the board chicago being a good example of that they hit everybody in an unexpected way with their live show but it's the records that really made Earth, Wind, and Fire the legends that they've become. Absolutely. And they even started out as a harder funk band, but looked over and saw what Parliament and Funkadelic were doing and were like, yeah, I think we'll change our sound a little bit. And they kind of grooved they dug more. In a yeah, they grooved in more to a soul groove that still had the elements of the funk, and you can hear it all over their sound. also helped change their sound because of his high beautiful voice that was just almost angelic when they saw him here's the thing like so many other groups of the time they started out okay they got signed because they were good right 
They're on a big label, Columbia Records, right? So there's the artist development thing that we talk about that doesn't really exist anymore. You know, these days, artist development happens in the garage, mm -hmm. just like it didn't for a lot of bands in the 60s. Mm -hmm. But these guys had a thing, and it took some time to get the thing focused. They started having some uh, big success in 73, 74 on R&B radio, but they were still making a mark, even though they weren't getting to the top of the charts. Until... Their first number one shining star in 1975, and then I think from there they ruled the rest of the 70s and beyond. Oh, yes, they did. I mean, think about this power list of singles that they released after Shining Star. That's the way of the world. Sing a song. Can't hide love. Saturday September. night, serpentine fire, fantasy, fantasy. which is where oh. I really, really got into them. And then you have and, that. And I really loved, and they really did a great number on their take on the Beatles, Gotta Get You Into My Life. That became oh, a yeah. hit all over again. Uh, hit number one, uh, oddly, on the R&B chart. I figured that one would be more uh, number one on the pop chart, maybe number nine on the R&B chart, and it's flipped around. That's mm -hmm. how hot they were. Number one was September on every R&B chart in the world. They yep. were the hottest band in the universe on all sides of the equation mm -hmm. in the 1970s. And it continued into the 80s, but here in the 70s, as it was happening, to be watching it happen. And don't forget Sun Goddess with Ramsey Lewis. Ramsey Lewis was a jazz pianist who used them as his band, and he had a top 20 R&B hit with Sun Goddess. That's just crazy. And to quote them, that's the way of the world, son. Yeah, seriously, they just were a power machine, just tune after tune. I bet those live shows were a blast. I bet the dancing was insane at those live shows. It still shows. is, man. When they go out on tour these days, Earth, Wind & Fire goes out with people like Chicago. It's a really good match as far as like the crowds and the vibe and all that. And, and part of that is how the hits kept happening, Marcus. It didn't end in the 70s for them. No, they had songs like Let's Groove, one of their biggest hits, come up in 1981 and beyond. And that's why we need to do an entire episode all about Earth, Wind & Fire. Without a doubt. There's a couple guys who became Rock and Roll Hall of Fame members. I don't know that they cared much about that. I'm talking about Curtis Mayfield and Jerry Butler, who really got together in a band called The Impressions, a vocal group, right? Yep. We didn't and get to talk much about them with uh, with Harvey, Harvey Holiday, uh, when he was on. But uh, I would love to have him back to talk about that part of it, the 70s and 80s and the vocal groups then, Boys to Men and what have you. Mm-hmm. They were a group that started, uh, they were founded as the Roosters in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and like many other Southerners, they moved to Chicago or Detroit to get gotcha. their music careers going, even though they were doing really well in the South. While the Impressions were a very influential band, Curtis had this shining light that shined a little brighter than everybody else's in a special way. Thank the Lord. 
That's why he got invited to join the impressions because he had that thing, that it. And it's shown through everything that he did in his career. And like many other artists at his time, he felt it was very important to speak up politically and to be active for social justice. Curtis had diabetes in a time when it was a lot tougher of a diagnosis than it is, say, today. It was a lot harder to live with it, and he didn't make it. Uh, yeah. He died in 1999. One of those things, the world yeah. needed more from a great guy like Curtis Mayfield. Absolutely. He also had that life-changing accident in 1990 that the stage lighting fell on him as he was being introduced on stage, oh, and he was paralyzed. It's something that seriously changed his life. Well, Jerry Butler's still with us, and he seems to be like the free spirit in all this. You know, from our conversation with Harvey and other things mm -hmm. I read, maybe he just felt like, hey, man, I'm in it. I'm staying in it, you know, and the impressions uh, get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Him and Curtis famously in 1991. Uh, but, you know, that was a long time after they had stopped singing together. That's true, but do you think they, I hope they remained amicable over that time period because they did a lot. They changed a lot. They did. But a lot of shit doesn't happen uh, without the impression. That's true, and a lot of times some of the people who make the biggest changes are the people behind the scenes or in the lower right. tiers that don't get the recognition that a Marvin Gaye or a Stevie Wonder gets, but we still need to acknowledge these other people behind the scenes or on the lower tiers who had such a huge impact on that change. Here's where Jerry continued to make a, an impact in the wheelhouse of what we're talking about here this week, Marcus, starting with his hit, If It's Real What I Feel, starting in 1971. He had a string of hits that did top 10 business on the R&B charts and got himself onto the pop charts upon occasion. And uh, I would say an elder statesman who has aged gracefully and had hits throughout his career, the great Jerry Butler, part of our discussion on R&B in the 70s, part two on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Hey, Marcus, can I talk to you about the Queen of Soul? Aretha? Yeah, baby. Sure. Well, uh, you know, she had an amazing career in the 1960s. Uh, sticking with it, just sticking to her guns. And all of a sudden, she started to get all this recognition for her amazing talent. If you think about it, that's the thing about Aretha was her ability to interpret songs, her, her singing ability, that raw ability mm -hmm. made her amazing to listen to. And, you know, she put all kinds of music out there and had hits with it, things that were not exactly pop fair of the 1960s, right? True. Not pop fair, a lot of gospel influence in her big hits in the early Especially days. Especially early on, yep. Gospel didn't cross over to mainstream as well as some of the other uh, formats that are tied Very to R&B and soul. She also started off 1970 with a bang with a B-side son of a preacher man making a lot of noise.
she kind of ramped up her 70s impact with the stuff that she put out in 1969, like the band song, The Weight. Remember her version of that? Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. And it's so much more positive and uplifting, like there's a light at the end of the tunnel more yeah. so than what the guys in the band sang. having number ones with all kinds of stuff making it her own and then she does bb king's the thrill is gone and hits number three on the r&b charts <laughs> and that's another b-side that dominates the charts a-side b-side on i don't think anybody gave a c-side d-side it doesn't yeah. matter it's gonna right. dominate it's aretha because the A-side was her take on the Elton John song, Border Song, Holy Moses, adding gospel to the mix, and she has a top hit with that. Yeah. Her take on Bridge Over Troubled Water, amazing, and number one on the R&B chart. Now, in the 70s, the thing that really sets the tone in my mind, it's on an album that I have of hers somewhere in the basement, Spanish, Harlem, Aretha Franklin, number one R&B, number two on the pop chart, really sets the tone for the Queen of Soul in the 1970s. I didn't know this, but that was originally recorded by Benny King in like 1960. Yeah. So repurposing a hit and taking it and making it her own and owning it. And while she continues to do that, she also continues to have original song hits throughout the 1970s and makes her way into the 1980s safely, safely as the queen of soul. <laughs> Can I get funky, brother? We need to get funky. We've been kind of Teasing the funk a little bit. Now I think we should maybe talk a little bit more about the funk. All right, I'm going to tell you, this was a real good indicator in the 1970s of when you were crossing over. Uh, in my mind, anyway, okay? And, and you got to remember, it's my mind, Marcus. Uh, okay. When a bunch of white suburban football players working out find relief 
and recreation in between three-a-day drills in the heat of summer with dancing together and singing Cool in the Gang records in the gym off a boombox, that's when you know you've crossed over. And that's what was going on in our high school gym in the summers of 75, 74, probably too. Uh, the beginning of their commercial success. And who were we singing with and dancing with? Cool in the Gang. I remember listening to Cool in the Gang and hearing them for the first time on the radio. I don't remember the first song I heard, but I do remember hearing Jungle Boogie. That is the one oh, that sticks baby. out. That's my jam. You had you uh, to see. My high school football team, bunch of, I'm telling you, some of the whitest guys, right? Yeah. All trying to dance the Jungle Boogie and singing along to it. And Hollywood Swinging, which was the follow-up hit, right? Yeah. It was the funniest shit ever, man. Because they, they were white guys with no rhythm and trying to be as funky as cool in the gang, which was impossible. And, you know, I mean, those were the big hits for them, but they continued to have hits throughout the 70s leading up to their biggest hit of all time, one that still gets played on radio, gets played at every big party or wedding or celebration. The song Celebration from Cool and the Gang wraps up the 70s for them. Yes, it does. And I've danced to that a million times, and I know you have too. And we will Not continue. Not a million, to... but I have danced to it. I won't listen uh, to that. And you're going to dance to it more, a million more times until the day you die. That's one of those Only songs that everybody weddings. will dance to forever. You hear it on the radio, you know you're going to bounce in the car. You know it. Why don't we turn to a unit, a combination of bands and artists that changed and morphed all through the years and decades, but became the funk personified. James Brown started the funk, Marcus Parliament, Parliament, Funkadelic, etc., etc., really made it, like, solid. This is the funk. There's no doubt they took the music to a whole new level. They took James Brown's funk to a whole new outer space level. Almost like psychedelic prog funk would be kind of a weird way to describe it because they have some long-ass songs. They go on these crazy Grateful Dead tangents and jams. And those jams are so groovy and funky and trippy. You're just like, where am I going? Space motherfucker. And they would tell you that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> George is the dog, man. You got so many names that are part of Parliament Funk Dog. But it doesn't begin or end without George Clinton, ladies and gentlemen. That is correct. He is the mastermind behind what we know as Parliament Funkadelic. When we have Harvey Holiday back, I want to ask him about the Parliaments, who are a, a vocal group, doo-wop group, so to speak, from Plainfield, New Jersey. That's how they got to start. They actually started singing at the fucking barbershop. How New Jersey is that? Yeah. <laughs> that is so New Jersey. And that was Clinton, Ray Davis, Fuzzy Haskins, Calvin Simon, and Grady Thomas singing together. And they became the Parliaments, then they became Parliament, when they guess when they became a band. And we're going to get into all of this. But right now, really, all I want to do is let the Parliament groove that's playing underneath us just kind of like slide in and take over here on the, on the podcast. 
Absolutely. Let, let I'm doc- up for the downstroke, Dr. Funkenstein is getting his groove on. I remember seeing these album covers as a kid and, and just being blown away by what I was seeing. I was like, whoa, that stuff is crazy. Knew I knew like I had to else. like it. I knew I was going to like it. You knew it wasn't like everything else that was out there because of the way it sounded mm-hmm. and all that. And then you're hearing, oh, it's on an album called The Motor Booty Affair. What's that look like? Oh, okay. They changed the game and created a new game, then changed that, and then created a new game and changed that. And that's why we have to absolutely have to do full-blown, over-the-top, take time, dig into all of its stuff about Clinton and everything that the Atomic Dog has brought to us. Oh, absolutely. That will be a fun episode, too. That will be a crazy, mind-blowing episode. All the people that came from Parliament, Parliament Funkadelic, so... I could just put together a masher, and we could just go all day and let it roll. That's true. It's the imbalanced history of rock and roll, man. We're just having too much fun, kind of filling in some gaps and Mm -hmm. talking about some people that we didn't get to uh, talk about at all on our first go-around a couple of years ago. True. And there's so many more to talk about. I know I would like to talk about the Commodores as well, an important band in the 70s who we should definitely talk about as we move forward into the third part and the fourth part. We also have uh, a bunch of one-hit wonders, and there's this great soul series called Soul Hits of the 70s. And it includes people like William Devon, be thankful for what you got. Um, the Undisputed Truth is in there. So you know many songs. They're all the songs that made us think that it was time to start getting around to doing part two. And we got to talk about some of it, but a lot of it we just don't have all the time for because we got to talk about Isaac Hayes. I know we do. We did mention him uh, in the first episode of R&B in the 70s, but not really to the degree that we probably should have. But we were just kind of breezing through when we did that one. I didn't realize that he was a child of a broken family. His mom died when he was very young, and his dad left him with his mom's parents, his maternal grandparents. And that's how he learned about working hard. He worked on the farm, uh, turned down an opportunity to go to college for music to make sure he provided for his family. He knew that he was meant for something more, and he didn't give up. He pursued it while providing for his family and working on the farm. Very, very strong strong thing to do oh yeah very honorable as well and he had been writing songs as well as making his own music writing songs and hits for other people like sam and dave and but you know through all of it marcus i think he knew that he was meant for something more and he kept pushing and he kept making the moves performing until he finally got his break A lot of people don't realize that he was one of the creative forces behind the Southern soul music that came out of Stax Records. He was an in-house songwriter, session musician, and producer, and wrote a lot of the songs that came out of there with his partner, David Porter, during the mid-1960s. So if you start looking up who played on what, it's Stax, which we should do, and that's another episode we need to put on the board, bro. Oh, yeah, Stax, Um, for sure. Make sure we look into Hayes and Porter. They got into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2005. Uh, they wrote for themselves and Sam and Dave. Carla Thomas had uh, most of her hits through them. And then in 2002, uh, Hayes was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Of course, their biggest hit that they wrote was Soul Man.
It's huge for Sam and Dave and, of course, the Blues Brothers, too, making it famous. And a lot of the guys who worked with Isaac at Stax Records were in that Blues Brothers band, you know. Yeah, I still remember all those scenes with all those great musicians throughout the Blues Brothers movie. Just so much fun. So, like a lot of artists of his time, Isaac was going through artist development leading up to the 1970s, and then he hits his stride on hot buttered soul, simmering just below the surface as the decade begins. That album is pretty darn incredible. It's four songs. To understand that album and maybe to understand Isaac Hayes moving into the 70s, you need to listen to his cover of Jimmy Webb's By the Time I Get to Phoenix. It's 18 and a half minutes long, and it really sets the vibe for who Isaac Hayes was to become and that includes leading up to his uh, Shaft album and the movie and of course his Black Moses album which got a lot of recognition and a lot of love when it came out and then he kind of took a bad turn as Ray would probably say (laughs) musically all I'm going to say is I looked into it Okay. On Chocolate Chip, released in 1975, the disco vibe begins to leak in a little bit, and it goes full on for the next three albums, Disco Connection, Groovathon, and Juicy Fruit Disco Freak. Four albums, two years, all leading to Isaac's deep dive into disco. Let's just call it that. (laughs) Many did not survive, but Isaac did. I have a quick list of people that he played with when he was working at Stacks. First off, like a shit ton of Otis Redding records. Yeah. Wilson Pickett, Donald Byrd, Albert King, Dion Warwick, Rufus Thomas, Eddie Floyd. Whew. Busy yeah. man. Yep. Knock on Wood's a great tune, too. Yeah. And it became huge in discos. The great Isaac Hayes on the imbalance history of rock and roll. I don't know about you, man, but I could go on like this all day. Different artists talking about songs, uh, the different songs. We could just take the top 10 songs of every year of the 70s and go through them and talk about those songs. And I I mean, I could do this all damn day. (laughs) Easily. There's so much music to talk about and so much good music and musicians like William Devon and Al Wilson. And we can go into the Cornelius Brothers and Sister Rose and... You oh, know, Rufus, and, and we have LTD and Jeffrey Osborne that you have to give love to because of their sound. So many. So many great artists who had multiple hits, but we should probably do an episode just about the one-hit wonders of the 70s sometime. You know what? You know what I'm thinking more and more? We might have a separate podcast here about R&B in the 70s, buddy. I don't know. We'll have to see how it falls out, but that's what it's feeling like to me a little bit. Seriously, there's so much good music from the soul sound in the 70s and the R&B sound in the 70s that we could easily do a podcast breaking all of it down. And so many things were going on behind the scenes that we learn about constantly, and I think that's why people want to maybe hear more about it. That's why so many people have downloaded it and listened to it, and in some cases listened to it multiple times. So we thank you for that. And we hope that you've enjoyed this episode of R&B in the 70s, part two. And again, if there's a soul musician of the 70s that you think we should talk about the next time we record, please let us know. You can email us at imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, on Twitter, at Imbalanced Histo, or of course on Instagram, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. We're looking for your input on everything, but when it comes to R&B in the 70s, we definitely want to hear from you because there's always more songs to pull up and listen to 
that bring back those great memories, man. Whether it's, uh, like you said earlier, about six, seven years old, or in my case, being a 14, 15-year-old, 16-year-old, getting into high school years. These songs that we've just been talking about, a lot of them are the seminal soundtrack of our lives, whatever that means. And if you're younger and you've never heard any of these groups before, just go to one of your, your listening apps and put in Stylistics, put in Delphonics, put in Isaac Hayes, you know, just find them, find Parliament and Funkadelic and go listen to them and continue to learn. That's why we do this podcast, right, bro? Absolutely. There's still so much more to learn and we're still learning about this music. Everybody's still learning about this music we're talking about from the 70s. And there's so many holes to fill. And all we can do is hopefully fill a few holes. Filling holes since 2019. That's <laughs> us. We're coming up on three years of this podcast. And we're getting ready for Punk Rock Month in April. We did that last year. We're working on that. And a listener episode month where maybe some of this stuff comes into play that we're talking about here. So you just never know what's going to come onto your device every week when we release our episode so however you end up uh, getting your ears around some of the music we were talking about today make time to do that and make time for us thank you we enjoy having you live in the dark doc studios i'm ray Koo. i'm marcus goldman and this has been r&b in the 70s part two on the imbalance history of rock and soul It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 